Chapter 14 of A Boy's Life of Booker T. Washington. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Bryan Stewart. A Boy's Life of Booker T. Washington by W. C. Jackson. Chapter 14 Visits to Europe. Washington was a great traveller. He was away from home at least half of each year, and often more than that. He travelled principally in the north, making speeches and interviewing people who might help Tuskegee. While on these trips, he did most of his reading and writing. He was very fond of newspapers and magazines. When he started on a long journey, he surrounded himself with a large number of papers and magazines and books, which he thoroughly enjoyed. History was his favourite field of reading, outside of newspapers and magazines. He was especially fond of biography, of reading about real men, men of action and thought and great talents. Much of his greatest inspiration as a boy came from reading the lives of great men. Lincoln was his greatest hero. He said that he had read practically every recorded word of Lincoln's. Washington also did much of his writing on these trips. He kept a stenographer with him all the time, and when he was not reading, he was usually dictating a speech or a letter or an article for a magazine. A large part of his greatest book, Up From Slavery, was written while he was on the train or waiting at stations between trains. It is remarkable that he should be able to accomplish so much under such circumstances, for travelling was hard work. He often had to get up in the middle of the night to catch a train, and then ride all day, often without Pullman accommodations. He said that he had slept in three different beds in one night, so broken was his rest, and so often did he have to change trains in order to keep engagements. And undoubtedly, it was this hard travelling that helped to break down his great strength and wear him out. In 1899, he made a speech in Boston, and some of his friends noticed that he was extremely tired. He remained in Boston several days. One day, during his stay, a friend asked him if he had ever been to Europe. He replied that he had not. He was asked very casually whether he thought he would enjoy a trip to Europe. He said that he certainly would, but he did not ever expect to have such a pleasure. A day or two later, some of his friends came to him and told him they had a little surprise for him, that they had made arrangements for him and his wife to go to Europe in the summer and spend several months on a vacation. Washington was very greatly surprised. He thanked his friends very cordially for their interest, but told him that he could not afford to take the trip. Whereupon, they told him that all the money for the expenses of the trip had already been raised, and that it would not cost him a cent. He thanked them again, very sincerely, but told them he could not think of leaving his work that long. The money had to be raised for Tuskegee, and they had to stay right on the job to get it. Then, they told him that a group of his friends had already raised enough money to keep Tuskegee going until he got back. He then gave another excuse. He was afraid people would say he was stuck up, that since he had made some success in the world, he was trying to show off and play the big man. His friends told him that sensible people would not think such a thing and that he need not bother about the people who had no sense. Washington thought, too, 
that he had no right to quit work so long. He had worked all his life. There was a world of work yet he had to do. To go off on a vacation of several months, when there was so much to be done, and when other people were at work, seemed wrong to him. But he realised finally that a reasonable amount of rest, when one is tired, means more and better work in the long run. So it came about that, on May the 10th, 1899, Washington and his wife went aboard the ship for Island in New York Harbour and sailed for Europe. It was a wonderful experience for Washington. In the first place, as he went aboard the ship, he received a message from two of his friends, telling them they had decided to give him the money to build a magnificent new building at Tuskegee. And that was a good send-off. Washington was a bit uneasy about how people would treat him aboard ship. He knew what unfortunate experiences some members of his race had had in times past. But the captain received him cordially, and everybody on the ship was exceedingly courteous to him and his wife in every way. Washington was on his way to Europe. It seemed to him like a dream. Again and again he had thought of Europe, much as he did of heaven, a goodly place, but far away. It never even occurred to him that he would ever go to Europe, and now he was on his way. He was like a schoolboy. He was happy over the prospect of a wonderful trip. He did not get seasick on the voyage, as most of the passengers did. The weather was fine, and he had a glorious voyage. But he did not know how tired and worn out he was until he relaxed. About the second day he began to sleep, and he says that from then on until they landed, he slept at least fifteen hours every day. He continued the habit of long hours devoted to sleep all the time he was gone, and it was one of the means by which he restored his depleted strength. After a fine voyage of ten days, they landed at Antwerp, a famous old city of Belgium. Here, they spent a few quiet days, finding it extremely interesting to observe the people with their dress and manners and customs, different from anything they'd ever seen before. Then, they went on a delightful journey through the picturesque country of Holland. Washington, always interested in farming, and especially dairy farming, was greatly delighted on this trip. On every hand were the wonderful farms of the Dutch. He had never seen such intensive cultivation of land. Every foot of ground was used. Vegetables were grown in boxes, one above another, on the back porches of houses. So precious was the skiers' land. And ten or twelve acres was a good big farm. Coming from a country where land was so abundant and cheap and so extravagantly wasted and so carelessly cultivated, these beautiful farms were a delight to him, and the herds of fine Holstein cattle pleased him immensely. He loved cows, and these seemed to be the finest herds he had ever seen in his life. Out of Holland and back into the historic and now heroic Belgium the party went, going to Waterloo, the famous battlefield of Napoleon's defeat, and to other places of interest, and from here to Paris, the gayest and brightest of all the cities of Europe, the capital of France. While in Paris, Washington met a number of distinguished Americans. He made two or three important speeches, and was given a reception by the American ambassador at Paris. He met ex-President Harrison, General Horace Porter, our ambassador, Justices Fuller and Harlan of the United States Supreme Court, and other distinguished men, 
all of whom were most cordial and friendly. The American whom he found most interesting in Paris, however, was a Negro, Henry O'Tanner. Tanner is an artist, a painter. He is the son of the beloved Bishop Tanner and was born in America. He showed marked talent for painting in his youth, and when he grew up, he determined to go to the greatest city in the world for art. He went to Paris and became so successful in his work that he has continued to live there. He has several paintings in the Louvre, the greatest and most exclusive art gallery in the world. A picture cannot be put in the Louvre unless it is recognised and accepted as a great work of art. Washington spent much time with Tanner and was greatly pleased to see what Mark's success had been won by this American Negro. He took it as proof of his contention that, when a Negro proves himself really worthy, he will be recognised and honoured, for Tanner enjoyed the esteem and regard of all his associates, regardless of race, and they esteemed him because of his worth and not because of his colour. From Paris, the Washingtons went to London. Here they visited many places of historical interest, the British Museum, Westminster Abbey, St. Paul's, and the House of Commons. They met many interesting people. The Duke and Duchess of Sutherland, Joseph H. Choate, American Ambassador to England, Henry M. Stanley, the great African explorer with whom Washington conversed at length. They were also received by Queen Victoria at Windsor Castle. It had been a wonderful trip. Washington had learned many lessons from the old world. He had seen and talked with men who helped him in the better understanding of his own great task. He had had a wonderfully good time. He was thoroughly rested, a new man. He plunged into his work again upon his return with great vigour and enthusiasm. Washington made two other trips to Europe during his lifetime. The second was largely like the first, a trip for recreation and pleasure and rest. But the third trip was undertaken with a serious purpose. He wanted to see how the poor people of Europe lived, and how their living conditions compared with those of the working men in the United States. He was particularly anxious to see how conditions there compared with those affecting the Negro population of the South. He also wanted to see whether or not he could find anything in Europe that would justify the system of education he had established at Tuskegee. So this time he left the usual highways of travel, and went far into the interior, visiting the peasant in his hut, in the remotest regions of the country, the miner toiling underground, the labourer in the quarry, and the poor man at his work, whatever it was and wherever he could be found. He visited farms in the remotest parts of Poland, Austria and Italy. He went to the sulphur mines in Campo Franco. At Catania, he saw the grape harvest and the men bare-legged, treading the wine-press as they did in Bible times. In a very remote part of Poland, away up in the mountains, he stopped at a little thatched-roofed cottage. Desiring to see how the place looked on the inside, he knocked at the door. In response, a man opened the door, and Washington said something to him in English, thinking, of course, that the man would not understand, but that he would be able to see inside the hut. And to his utter astonishment, the man answered him in English. Upon further conversation, he found that this man had once lived in Detroit, Michigan. When he was in the mines at Campo Franco, Sicily, he by chance met a man who had once worked in the mines near Mould in West Virginia, where Washington himself had worked when a boy. The world is not such a big place after all. As a result of his observations of conditions in Europe, 
Washington came to the conclusion that the Negro in the South is, generally speaking, in far better condition than the peasant of Europe. He also noted that, wherever conditions were fairly good, where the natives owned the land and had developed reasonably good farming conditions, there was no immigration from that region to America. But where conditions were bad, where farms were not well kept, where people were not permitted or encouraged to own their own homes, from such sections there was always much immigration to America. In other words, good local conditions, land ownership, good schools and so on, tended to make the people happy, contented, and desirous of remaining where they were. In this fact he saw a great lesson for his own people. He believed that the South is the home of the Negro, that here it is possible for him to do his best. He was, therefore, tremendously anxious for the Negroes to learn how to cultivate the soil to the best advantage, to buy land, to build schools, to establish churches, and in every way to become real citizens of the country where they were. Washington wrote an interesting book describing what we saw and learned on this trip. It is called The Man Farthest Down. As stated before, he pointed out that there were many, many people farther down than the American Negro, and that compared to most of the people of Europe, he ought to be exceedingly thankful that his condition is as good as it is. Of course, he did not mean by this that conditions with the Negro were what they ought to be, but that the Negro should be thankful for the progress that he had made, that he should take courage and go forward to better things. The most interesting experience of this trip to Europe was his visit to the King and Queen of Denmark at Copenhagen. On his first visit to the palace, he was received by the King. Washington was much impressed by the King's cordiality and simplicity, by his knowledge of America, and by his acquaintance even with the work Washington was doing at Tuskegee. At the close of the interview, the King invited him to dine at the palace that night. Now, the invitation of a King is the same as a command, and one is always expected to accept. Of course, Washington was delighted to accept this invitation. And Washington spent the rest of the day preceding the dinner hour, visiting the country people near Copenhagen. He was late getting home, and was terrified when he realised that he might be late for dinner. To keep the king and queen waiting would be a terrible offence. He dressed as rapidly as he could, but in his haste he pulled his necktie to pieces, the only one he had fit for the occasion. He pinned it together the best he could and put it on, but he says that he was in great distress throughout the dinner lest the tie come to pieces again. He reached the palace just in time for the dinner. He was taken directly to the king, who led him to where the queen was standing, and presented him to her. She was very cordial and gracious. She spoke English perfectly, and Washington was again surprised to find that she, too, was thoroughly familiar with affairs in the United States, and that she also knew about Tuskegee. There was a very distinguished group of people present. The dinner was given in the magnificent summer palace, and everything was truly royal in its elegance and splendour. Washington says, As I ate my food for the first time in my life out of gold dishes, I could not but recall the time when as a slave boy I ate my syrup from a tin cup. End of chapter 14